Your Bible should fall open with a giant crease at 1 Timothy 3.1 at this point. And we'll be looking at another passage this morning as well. While you're finding 1 Timothy 3.1, you may have noticed, maybe not, you may have noticed that our world in general and our nation in particular are going bananas. I don't know how else to put it. We have COVID vaccine mandates already happening, forcing people to do something with their bodies based on a political agenda, completely violating what it means to be made in the image of God. Up until recent months, if your doctor recommended something, it was still your choice. Now politicians and corporations are attempting to make that choice for you. Now a vaccination is presented as a moral choice, not a medical choice. That's wrong. We have increasing mask mandates. Anyone who wants to wear a mask, that's certainly your personal choice. But the case can be made that mask mandates, again, are a total violation of a higher law, the fact that we're created in the image of God with all the implications of that fact. And we have a new state religion, the cult of critical race theory, which is every bit of every bit of religion of self-righteousness and self-redemption in which lost and unregenerate people are now mandating a false standard of morality based on nothing divine whatsoever, that you're to have some sort of awakening so that you may now claim to be woke. These things are alarming to us, but what's more alarming to me is when the church of Jesus Christ falls right in line with these things with cultural expectations and lets the world determine the church's agenda. How many times are we going to fall for that? The church has been suffering and languishing under the idea of keeping up with the times, of being innovative, of trying to please the world, of contextualization, which means trying to make the church fit into the culture as if being as much like the world as possible somehow drives the power of the gospel. It's never been the case. And the church can't ever keep up with the culture because when it tries, it gets in trouble quickly because the culture is dictating the church's priorities and we can't ever keep up. Look, if you've ever been involved in church leadership, what's the one thing that's hard to do quickly? Change anything. We can't keep up with a culture that's changing as fast as a news cycle. It takes us a year to figure out that we're supposed to do X, Y, and Z to please the culture But by the time we finally get it done, the culture's moved on and we're behind the times again. The church can't keep up. Why? Because we weren't designed to. We're designed to stay the same until Christ returns. And so, you know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, what fellowship has light with darkness? We can't join hands with the world. We can't take our advice from them. So how do we fight this seemingly insurmountable mountain of wickedness, of totalitarianism, of a state religion that is now developing, of spiritual oppression, of deception that's happening in the world and sadly bleeding into the church? How do you fight that? Well, the answer is very simply by doing what we've always done. By being a faithful church proclaiming the redeeming gospel of Christ, the only hope for humanity. And a major, might I dare say, the major component of being a faithful church is the faithful shepherding of the church. The shepherding of the church is vital, which means the church's shepherds are the keystone to a church's faithfulness or lack thereof. I had a conversation recently with an old school Southern Baptist church member 
And he told me, quote, the pastor doesn't matter. Pastors come and go. That's exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. Shepherds determine in, in great degree whether a local church is going to be faithful or not. Now, as we've been looking here at uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1, and the church's shepherds in a long preparation and foundation for the qualifications of an elder in verses 2 through 7, we've been in a short section that we've called vocational and volunteer shepherds. Last time we looked at volunteer shepherds. Today, I'd like to look at the vocational ministry, the minister of the gospel who dedicates his life, the whole of his life, to service to Christ in the church. And once again, we're faced with the question, but how does that apply to me? Well, just several things to keep in mind. First of all, this helps you pray for and encourage your current pastors. We need prayer. We need your prayers. It'll also help you pray for and encourage future pastors. And just by virtue of understanding the gospel ministry, I think you're helped in your understanding of the church. And so I'd like to outline some important features of the gospel ministry. But first, I want to be, have us be reminded of our home-based text. And I'd like to give you some other introductory thoughts to really set the table for us this morning. Once again, 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul uses two important words when it comes to the shepherding of the church of Jesus Christ. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And an easy way to think about these words is that aspiring is external, desiring is internal. In other words, to aspire, it's a word that means to stretch out for, to strive for something. This has to do with the things you do to prepare for the gospel ministry. It has to do with doing things. Desire, on the other hand, simply a word that means to set your heart upon something. That's the internal drive, the yearning for the gospel ministry. And I understand this drive and and yearning. It's, It's not a profession. It's not a job. It's certainly not a career choice. I think most of the pastors I know wouldn't have chosen the ministry, but God chose it for them and didn't give them any other options. But here's the real crux of the issue second corinthians 4 the apostle paul says we have this ministry as a mercy of god and that is such a great reminder in fact in my study for this message i I really thought about all the tremendously great things about the gospel ministry at least in my own life i mean for me it's it's a dream come true because when god calls you to do something he also gives you a desire for it here's a few things that i get to enjoy the power of the preached word I have the only job on earth that already has a guarantee in the Bible. Did you know that? Your job isn't guaranteed. You might be bad at it and get fired. My job is guaranteed. Isaiah 55, 11, So my word, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is thrilling to me. That all I have to do is open the Bible and explain it and something's going to happen. I get to enjoy the life of the church. I live in the life cycles of the church. I live with the births all the way to the going home to heaven. I live with salvation and with the the public baptisms. We've had so many right over here in our little Lego baptistry. I've, I've lost track. I get to share the Lord's table with you regularly. 
I've been here at Grace Bible Church long enough now to have seen the longing and the yearning of a young couple desire to get married, seeing them get married, and then see the little ones coming one after another. I get to live through that. I'm having intelligent conversations with children who were in diapers when I got here. I'm having intelligent conversations with children who didn't exist yet when I got here. That is a true joy to live in the life of the church. I get to enjoy the impact on my family. In the pastoral ministry, our lives are lived exclusively in the church, and that's the way I want it. My home life and ministry life are mixed. They're mingled. My family calendar is married to the church's calendar. My family has learned that church is where life is lived. It's not something we do on Sundays. The church is part and parcel of our life at some level every day. I'm thankful for the impact on myself. Every single week, the Word of God convicts me, it cleanses me, it repairs me, it encourages me. And honestly, this series on the church's shepherds has been like putting my own heart under a microscope every week. I am very ready to start pointing the finger at you again for a change. <laughs> but any minister of the gospel who spends time in the Word as he ought to understands the value of just year after year after year soaking in the truth of God, where you become your own concordance. I get to enjoy the fellowship of the body. The fellowship we enjoy, everything from doing steadfast Bible conference together to simply being engaged in various parts of the ministry. In our family, almost every Saturday evening and or Sunday morning, we pray to be as effective as we can in the, in the fellowship of the body, to be encouraging, to engage in deeper conversations. Nobody wants to see the, the pastor's family walking in looking clinically depressed. We're here to be joyful, and I want you to be joyful. To be uplifting, that's what we enjoy. I'm thankful for the leaders who impact me. What a joy it is to work alongside great men and women of God who are doing faithful and consistent work for the kingdom of Christ simply by serving year after year after year. I'm moved, I'm motivated, I'm sustained when I think of each of you, when I pray for you, and I... I join Paul as he prayed in Philippians 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So I, I count myself so very blessed. So very blessed. I'm supremely honored to be a vocational shepherd. But I would like to share with you kind of the inside scoop on what are some of the features of the gospel ministry. How can we better understand the calling and the responsibilities of the vocational shepherd, the minister of the gospel in the church? And I think to help us, we could turn to the Apostle Paul. He is the consummate shepherd. And I'd like to take us to a familiar passage. If you would go to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, which happens to include our church's uh, theme verse as well in this passage. But just to help us understand the call to vocational shepherding, I want to share with you five features of the gospel ministry from Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Five features of the gospel ministry. Now, as Paul writes the wonderful believers in Colossae, uh, last week we highlighted one of them, Philemon. He takes time to comment on his own ministry as a shepherd of the people of God. And we'll just read this whole passage here together. Colossians 1, 24, follow along with me. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let me give you five features of the gospel ministry. The first feature of the gospel ministry, we'll call this the price. The price of the gospel ministry. Immediately here we see that Paul has made an assessment. He's suffered for the sake of the church and yet he rejoices in these sufferings in verse 24. And the result of his assessment is that his suffering is worth the cost. And he says something interesting. He says that he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's not to say that Paul is somehow adding to the work of Christ on the cross. Not saying that at all. He's simply saying that now Christ is in heaven and that as Christ's representative on earth, Paul continues in a sense where Christ left off. That he is suffering on behalf of Christ. Jesus himself promised the disciples that they would have trials, they would have troubles, they would have uh, uh, suffering, they would have tribulation, and Paul joins the ranks of those receiving that promise. What did Paul suffer? 2 Corinthians 11 tells us, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I don't think anybody's going to beat that. And this certainly wasn't a career choice for Paul. This was a compulsion up to and including giving his life for the sake of the ministry. He was beheaded outside of the city of Rome for the testimony of his faith. Now, most ministers of the gospel aren't going to suffer at the level that Paul did but there are certain realities of the gospel ministry. You give up your personal aspirations and dreams. Whatever thought you had of being or doing, anything else in this life that's now put by the wayside and it's simply given up. How long? It's given up forever. You just give it up. You endure the heartache of sheep that bite. Paul wrote the Galatians and he poured out his heart to them that they who had once loved him sacrificially had turned their hearts away and against him. He asked them in Galatians 4.15, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. He's saying, what, what did I do? What happened? You endure the stigma of a life viewed by the world as a failure. In a room full of people in casual conversation, one person asks another, What do you do? I'm an attorney. Oh, Another says, I'm in upper management. Ah, you say, I'm a pastor. You get this look like you just said you were homeless. Like, oh, okay, well, I'm good for you. That's wonderful. (laughs) 
Pastors don't go to high school reunions. He said, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a pastor. Oh, wow. I'm sorry about that. You know, there's still time. You can figure something out. You live a life of faith in God's provision. There's no corporate guarantees. There's no pension necessarily. A church can be a volatile organization that one minute is paying 10 pastoral staff members and a month later can barely pay one if the wheels came off that ministry. And as a pastor, you live the irony every single week that the ones who give to support your family are the very ones to whom you're applying the word of God to challenge their idols and tear down the strongholds of their sin. Again, that's why we take the, idol, the, the, uh, the offering before we preach. <laughs> it's very important. It's in the Bible somewhere. Listen, you don't get into the gospel ministry to become wealthy. I've known a few very, very wealthy ministers of the gospel. You know what they often do? They often quit because they're not living by faith anymore. And yet we're blessed to trust the Lord for provision and for our care. Uh, Sylvia and I have lost track of the number of times we prayed for God's help. I mean, we just count on it. He's so faithful. You receive the suffering that the Lord brings to sanctify you and your family. I don't know a pastor who doesn't have some form of chronic suffering that he's dealing with. That's just the way it is. That seems to be part and parcel of the calling. You're assaulted with temptations on every side. The temptation to an unhealthy desire for attention to have the biggest following from the world. The temptation to believe your own legend. The temptation to view yourself as indispensable. The temptation to idolize the church instead of worshiping Christ. The temptation to try to please people before God. Yes, even the ones who are supporting your family. The temptation to waste time and lots of busy work and neglecting the study of the word of God the temptation to give in too soon to weariness and the list just goes on this is why we need your prayers the gospel ministry has a price to it there's a second feature of the gospel ministry we'll call this one the pictures of the gospel ministry the pictures of the gospel ministry in verse 25 Paul says he's become a minister kind of to us an old-fashioned word and it has a, a connotation that's very clergy-like it's the it's the classic word for the vocational pastor but paul here is giving a picture this is the same word translated deacon a servant in other words paul doesn't picture himself as a chief executive officer or as some sort of royalty in the church first and foremost he is a servant why Verse 24, for the sake of his body, that is the church. The church isn't a means to a greater end. The the church isn't a stepping stone to national notoriety. The church isn't a, a, a ladder to climb for career advancement. The church is the point. The church is the end game. What I'm doing right now with you is not a stepping stone to anything else. Everything else I've done is a stepping stone to this. That's the way it's to be. So Paul pictures him self as a servant for the sake of the church but interestingly he also gives us another uh, several other pictures of the gospel ministry and i won't have you turn to all these passages but here's several more pictures he pictures the gospel ministry as being a soldier being a soldier paul asked in first corinthians 9 7 who serves as a soldier as his own, as his at his own expense and what he's doing here is defending the right of the vocational shepherd to receive material benefit from his own church he calls Epaphroditus and Archippus his fellow soldiers in, in Philippians 2 and Philemon verse 2. Part of the point of this picture is the singular focus of the gospel ministry. 
Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul calls the gospel minister a farmer. Again, in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, he says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Paul calls the vocational shepherd in 2 Timothy 2, 6, the hardworking farmer. The Lord Jesus himself used this metaphor of a farmer. He said in Luke 10, verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice he doesn't call them the farmer that owns the land. They're just the laborers. In his parable of the sower, Jesus even pictures the gospel like seed being spread by a farmer. Most seed falls on bad soil, but some seed falls on good soil and grows and bears spiritual fruit. Probably most familiar to us, Paul pictures the gospel ministry as being a shepherd, as being a shepherd. Once again, in 1 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul calls the vocational pastor the one who tends a flock, primarily by feeding the sheep the truth of Scripture. The apostle Peter makes certain in 1 Peter 5 that we know that this is not the flock of the pastor. It is the flock of God. And this picture of pastor as shepherd is seen in the repeated example of Christ himself. He is the good shepherd, John 10. He is the great shepherd, Hebrews 13. He is the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5. The book of Revelation says he is the shepherd who is the lamb in the midst of the throne of heaven who guides his people to springs of living water and wipes the tears from their eyes. Paul pictures the gospel minister as an athlete, as an athlete, 1 Corinthians 9.26, he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. What is the picture of the athlete about? This speaks of focus. It speaks of discipline. It speaks of intentionality that's involved in the gospel ministry, of striving forward when you don't feel like it. And of course, faithfulness and sound doctrine Paul referred to this picture of an athlete when he said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept what? The faith. So the vocational pastor is a servant for the church, a soldier for the Lord, a farmer to sow seed, a shepherd to feed the flock, an athlete to run the race of the ministry and fight the good fight of the truth. But how does God make a minister of the gospel? How does that happen? Well, that brings us to a third feature. We've seen the price of the gospel ministry, the pictures of the gospel ministry. And third, I'd like to show you a, th- a third feature, the pull of the gospel ministry. The pull of the gospel ministry. Now, you noticed in verse 25 that Paul said he became a minister according to the stewardship. It means the responsibility for caregiving. The stewardship that was given to me for you. It was given to him. And what was the purpose? To make the word of God fully known. You notice that Paul was given this duty. He was blindsided and saved by the grace of God on the road to Damascus. And in no uncertain terms was given no option that he was to be a representative of Jesus Christ on earth. He was bound to this duty because it came straight from God. When it comes to the gospel ministry, this sort of single-minded focus on the ministry is sometimes labeled the call of the gospel ministry. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul said he was called by the will of God to be an apostle. 
Now, some have debated the question, is there really a call? Or is it just a logical decision based on giftedness and personal desire and a career choice? Well, I would point to the countless men through the past 2,000 years who have been unable to do anything else because they can't think of anything else. They can't focus on anything else. They can do no less than to attempt to be faithful as a shepherd of the flock of God. Generally speaking, this call, if we can use that term, often begins with the internal desire. We've already seen that desire. First Timothy 3.1, it's a longing, it's a yearning, it's a drive, it's a compulsion. But the desire is just the starting place. I desired to be the starting quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. That's nice. You may desire the gospel ministry, but it's not nearly enough. Because from that point, then the life and the maturity and the doctrine and the ministry experience of that man must go undergo testing and training and ultimately approval from other qualified men. This involves an, an investment of time, years and years, not months and not days. It involves the investment of the church as well. A little side note here, one of the greatest things a local church can do for the gospel, if resources allow, is to establish a scholarship fund for future pastors. What a great thing for the church to do and to allow for opportunities for ministry for potential future pastors. It involves an investment of personal sanctification and maturity in the Lord. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul told Timothy to keep a close watch on himself. A shepherd devoid of personal character is, is worthless to the church. He's useless. And the spiritual qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 these are necessary. They're the starting point. This is why men are not self-qualified. Whenever a man says, God called me to the ministry, well, how, did you, how do you know that? Well, he told me in a dream. No. How do you know you're qualified? Because others who are already qualified say so. There should be a clear observable giftedness observed both by the candidate for the gospel ministry and by the church. This should include, at the top of the list, the qualification of being able to teach. Now, we don't expect every single shepherd to be equally gifted in terms of public speaking or presentation skills. But in the vocational shepherd, there has to be a level of skill and aptness to not only studying the Bible and grasping sound doctrine, but also explaining it in a way that's understandable. That makes sense. In fact, the pastor or the pastor-to-be is to have a yearning for the Christ-likeness of the people in his charge and in his care. That, that should be the, his heartbeat. To be like Paul who said in Galatians 4.19 that he felt like, that he said, I felt like I'm, he's in childbirth in the labor pains until Christ is formed in you. That that's the drive. And this drive includes a fiery sense of priorities that the study and the presentation of the Word of God trumps everything else. Everything else can be moved off the calendar. Everything else can be canceled. Everything else can be postponed. Not the study of the Word. That's the pull of the gospel ministry. There's a fourth feature. The preparation of the gospel ministry. The preparation of the gospel ministry. At the end of verse 25, Paul is to make the Word of God fully known what he calls in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages that he is to make known the riches, the depths, the details, the nuances of the glory of this mystery. And what is this mystery? Verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I have a question for you. 
if a man is to, verse 26, make the word of God fully known, if a man is to, verse 27, explain the riches of the glory of this mystery, doesn't it follow that this man should be trained in the word of God at a very high level? Not every man follows exactly the same path to the gospel ministry. My own path is certainly not one I would recommend to anyone, although I know that God is sovereign over that path. But I do know this. I believe with my whole heart in the formal training of vocational pastors, most especially those who are imparting the word of God to others. How would you like to be being wheeled into, into a surgery and hear Somebody asked your brain surgeon, how did you learn to do this? Oh, I read some books. Hey, hang on a minute. I want to know you're trained. I've had the opportunity to talk to a number of men over the years who expressed a desire for the gospel ministry, but not for the time and the energy that it takes to be trained at the seminary level. I've talked to men who uh, say, I want to be a minister of the gospel, but they can't show up to work on time. I've talked to men who say, I want to study the word of God, but they don't really like to study. When someone says, I want to be in the gospel ministry, but I don't want to go to seminary, I've heard two primary reasons, each of them multiple times. Reason number one, quote, Charles Spurgeon didn't go to seminary. Answer, you're no Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) It's very simple. That one's easy. Reason number two, No one in the Bible went to seminary. Answer, au contraire, as our French brothers would say. First of all, the 12 disciples were with Jesus day and night for three and a half years. That's the greatest seminary education in the history of the world. Second, Paul was trained in the scriptures by Gamaliel, likely from the time he was 10 years old. And third, we have an example in the book of Acts in the history of the church that provides a precedent for concentrated training from men of God. In fact, I want to show it to you. Turn over to Acts chapter 19 with me, if you would, just for a moment. Acts 19, then we'll come back to Colossians 1. In Ephesus, Paul opened essentially a school of theology to train the future leaders of the church in the Roman province of Asia. Paul was on his third missionary journey. This is around 52, 56 AD, right in that time period. He left Antioch, and after traveling through the churches of southern Galatia, he came to the city of Ephesus. Look at chapter 19, Acts 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this isn't exactly what we might think of as a seminary education today, but it does provide a precedent for focused theological education in several ways. First of all, there's a concentration on truth. Paul was reasoning First with anyone who would listen, but then he withdrew and he focused only on those who wanted to learn deeply. He didn't concentrate on church growth techniques. There was no class on church politics, no class on cultural studies, but it was on the truth of the kingdom, the word of God. We don't soften the gospel for the sake of being popular or acceptable to the culture. Why did he pull back with those who really wanted to learn? Because he was going to teach them the word not teach them what he thought they wanted to hear. 
So there's a concentration on truth. It also sets a precedent because there was a focus on training. A focus on training. Paul withdrew and began meeting with the disciples in this nearby lecture hall. Paul's new location was the hall of Tyrannus. This is the, the Greek word for hall here, by the way, is where we get the word school. First of all, it was a place of leisure. And I know this is odd to us, but in, in the Greco-Roman culture, lecture and discussion was a major form of recreation, that that's what you did. But it was also a place of formal instruction as well. Uh, just a little side note here, there's pretty good textual evidence from some New Testament manuscripts that Paul taught there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. Now, why is that important? In the Greco-Roman world, that was basically nap time, 11 to 4. And so, uh, the hall would be available for use by Paul, probably at a discounted rate, because everyone else is off resting. Why would you do that? It's not that they're lazy. It's that in the heat of the day, it's better to work very early in the morning and late into the evening. And so, you, you took the, the hottest part of the day off. They took the hottest part of the day to meet in an unair-conditioned hall and learn the word of God together six days a week. Not only was there a concentration on truth, a focus on training, there was also a commitment of time. Paul taught daily for two years. Just to put a, a, a perspective on this, the average Master of Divinity program in a graduate seminary is just shy of 100 units of instruction. It's been estimated that the quantity Paul put in here would have been 200 units of instruction, two graduate degrees. Not only was there a concentration on truth, a focus on training, a commitment of time, one more way this sets a precedent is there was an expected result. This is phenomenal. This is why we should train men. By concentrating his efforts in training, the results were exponential. Look at the end of verse 10. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, scholars have noted that these were almost certainly the trained men who planted the churches and all the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, who planted the churches all over Asia Minor. They came from one spot, the Hall of Tyrannus. So just a heart for the ministry is not adequate. There is preparation for the gospel ministry. Turn back with me now to Colossians 1. And not only do we see the the price of the gospel ministry, the pictures of the gospel ministry, the pull of the gospel ministry, the preparation of the gospel ministry, the fifth feature we'll call the priority of the gospel ministry. The priority of the gospel ministry. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is very Christologically centered and it is very instructionally centered. This is verbal in nature. Proclamation of Christ. Warning, teaching the wisdom of the word. And look at Paul's description of the effort He put into this verbal instruction, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul toils and struggles with the very energy of God himself. At what? At the priority of the gospel ministry, the preached word of God. Specifically what we would call expository preaching. What is expository preaching? It's very simply the systematic explanation of Scripture with the goal of having the Bible speak for itself. That's expository preaching. And preaching obviously has applications and implications for the listener. 
Why must preaching be the top priority of the shepherd of God's people? Not just in the top five, not just in the top three, not just in the top two, but the top priority with no, zero, absolutely zero close seconds. None. Let me give you some key words to help us understand that preaching is the ultimate total priority of the vocational shepherd. I'll give you five key words. The first key word is gospel. Gospel. Peter said to Jesus in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Paul reminds us in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What a mistake it is for the preacher to try to prioritize relating to your felt needs or, or attempting to convince the congregation that it's you relating to me and me relating to you that eventually can create change. Or that me understanding you is the life-changing event. How could I possibly understand all of you? I don't even understand myself sometimes. But the Word of God understands you. It is sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces and divides soul from spirit. The greatest need for the saved is to hear the gospel. The greatest need for the lost is to hear the gospel. Now, some of you might be surprised to hear that the greatest need for the saved is to hear the gospel. But Paul told the Roman Christians, this mature church, in Romans 1.15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What do we mean by this? Can you look at the cross often enough? Can you remember the blood of Christ often enough? Can you contemplate the wrath of God averted and poured out on our Savior Instead of you, often enough, is there ever a moment when you say, I don't really think the gospel is relevant to me today? No, the gospel is that which ought to permeate our lives, and it certainly ought to permeate preaching. What about for the unbeliever? It's very sad to me when the preacher believes his job is to make the unbeliever feel good about church and feel good about himself instead of pleading with them to, to repent. Can I tell you this? The gospel continually pleads repentance. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew eleven twenty. then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Mark six twelve. Jesus preached to the people of Israel. So they went out, or Jesus' disciples, rather, preached to the people of Israel. Here was the message. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. Luke 13.5, unless you repent, you will all, all likewise perish. Luke 15.7, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Oh, we want the precious lost people who are among us and who walk in our doors to feel welcomed. But I don't want them to feel good about church. They need to know Christ. Then and only then can they feel good about church because they're now part of the church. There's another key word, power. Power. Second Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The Scriptures fly far above any man-made program, any attempt to be relevant, any attempt to relate to the current generation. It's always funny to me to see a, a 
25-year-old pastor that thinks that the way he dresses is going to make him relevant to young people. Okay, that's fine. You can kind of get away with that. Fast forward 45 years. Try it now. There is nothing you can wear. There is nothing you can do. There is no hairstyle. There is no surgery you can have. There is nothing. The Bible doesn't need a preacher to be a go-between to somehow soften the listener's heart to desire the Bible. No, it's the Bible that softened the listener's heart to desire God. The the pastor isn't the guy who creates a production-oriented church service with the goal of satisfying whatever customers walk in the door. No, God is satisfying. I can't satisfy you. God alone satisfies. And he's revealed in his word in exquisite detail the eternal depths of the glory of God and the heights of his wonders in everlasting power. And there is no power in preaching that isn't grounded deeply in the word. The entire uh, seeker-sensitive movement that really took off in the early 80s is founded on one basic principle, that you do not start with the Bible, you work your way toward the Bible. That's idiotic, and it makes no sense. There is power in the Word. Listen, the Word of God is like a Maserati. You just get in and enjoy the ride, because it is powerful. The third key word, certainty. Certainty. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Isn't that comforting? Verse 130 of the same psalm, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I love this phrase, the unfolding of your words. You know what this means? It's a Hebrew word that means to let something loose. The unfolding of your words. The word of God is universal. It transcends time. It transcends culture. It transcends geography. It presents truth that you can bet your eternity on. We know what the Bible means by what it says, and you can bank on those truths. The Bible is filled with clarity, with precision, with exactitude. The Bible is fastidiously detailed in the person of God, the work of God, the character of God. In the Bible, you can find the certain answers to the questions that mankind has never been able to answer on his own. What is the true nature of man? Who is God and what is he like? What does God require of mankind? What is the answer to the problem of sin and evil? Why is there death and destruction in the world? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why is the future of all things? Uh, what is the future of all things? What is the future of myself if I'm in Christ? What is my future if I'm not in Christ? Because you have The Bible, because you have the word of God, you can have certainty. This is why Christians get fatal diagnoses with a smile. Because we already know what's going to happen. I literally have known men and women who have been disappointed to find out the diagnosis was wrong. The Bible is the self-revelation of God and it's only in the Bible that we have certainty that our God is holy, that he's righteous, that he's gracious, that he's just, that he's kind, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's all-sufficient. The Bible presents God in all his satisfying and satiating glory. The preached word of God over time should so fill you with the certainty of truth that there's only one result, and that is joy. That is joy. You know, a couple of decades ago, the big thing in the church was what 
uh, theologians call the emergent church. It was a horrible, heretical movement that was based on the idea that we don't really know the truth of the Bible. And that I don't want to give you certainty. I just want to give you a lot of questions to ask. I don't have any answers for you. And it was, sounded really good and really intellectual. Where's the emergent church? They're gone. Why? Because we need answers. We need answers. And while it sounds good to say, let me leave you with seven questions of which I have no idea how to answer, that doesn't, it doesn't fly over time. You need answers. And every time you hear the preached word of God, you're having your thirst for God quenched with the living waters of the mind of God expressed in words. Let me give you a fourth key word when it comes to expository preaching, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The nourishment that we need to grow in the Lord is placed before us in the word of God. In fact, listen to how the Apostle Peter connects decreasing in your sin and increasing in your spirituality, increasing in your growing up spiritually. Look how these two things are connected to longing for the Bible. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That's the decreasing of sin. How do you do this? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Long for the word of God so that you decrease sin and increase righteousness. By preaching the Bible, the pastor is placing you under the sovereign and total authority of God. By preaching the Bible, the pastor is cornering you under the headship of Christ and Christ alone. By preaching the Bible, the pastor is expecting the Holy Spirit to work powerfully to change your minds, to change your hearts, to change your behaviors in conformity to Christ. One of my heroes of the faith is the great English preacher, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached from the 1930s to the 60s in London. And he was relentless in his preaching toward Christ-likeness. He preached with precision. His nickname was the doctor. A lot of people know that. Fewer people know that he really was a doctor. He preached with precision. He made clear biblical arguments week after week after week. He cornered and he confronted his listeners that following Christ means total surrender, total obedience, a lifetime of the Lordship of Christ. He said this, Holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are to do because of what we already are. He said this, if you do not desire to be holy, I do not see that you have any right to think that you are a Christian. And I love this. How's the church to be? He said this, the glory of the gospel is that, is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. You don't attract the world by being like the world. You attract the world by being opposite of the world and being like Christ. One more key word, worship. Worship. John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? In genuineness of faith, that you're a real believer. In the heartfelt yearning to offer to God your worship. It's not just external religiosity. And then in truth, true worship can only be given based on the knowledge of God. The less you know of God, the more shallow your worship will be. 
The more uninformed you are about God, the more selfish your worship will be. I'll tell you what, in our culture, we are continually fighting a consumer view of the church and of worship. That somebody walks in the door and they're here for the first time. What is their automatic thought? What can you do for me? No, we walk in the door. What can I do for God? How can I exalt him? What words may I say? What words may I listen to? What words may I sing? What words may I pray? They would offer to God that which is, that he is worthy of. I'll put it this way. The church will only experience transcendent worship to the level that they grasp divine truth. Because it is divine truth which creates our yearning to offer our worship to God. I grew up in Sunday school a lot. And out of all the time there, I think I learned two songs. I don't have a good memory for songs for some reason. I learned Jesus loves me, but then I found out everyone on planet Earth knows Jesus loves me. Then I learned the little song, Deep and Wide. You remember that one? Even with the hand motions, deep and wide, deep and wide, there is fountain flowing deep and wide. You know what, though? We need to know that the fountain is filled with the blood of Christ, which was shed to satisfy the wrath of God against your sin. And that fountain is deeper than the depths of the most heinous sin you could ever commit, and it is wider than the lengths to which you've gone to stray off of the path to heaven. You can never run from it. True and genuine adoration of God is rooted in minds that grasp divine truth. And, and rehearsing them by listening to the preached word continually and by singing these truths together in the assembly of those made righteous by the fountain that is deep and wide. The preached word of God informs your worship. Listening to the preached word of God itself is an act of worship because right now at this moment, you are giving your mind over to the things of God. That is worship. And so there's gospel, there's power, there's certainty, there's Christ-likeness, there's worship. These are compelling reasons to presenting the word of God as the singular priority of the vocational shepherd. Well, what should you do about all of this? Because I know this doesn't apply directly to most of you. Here's several ideas. Please continue praying for the Shepherds of Grace Bible Church. We need your prayers desperately. It is such a blessing to me when somebody tells me I prayed for you every day this week. That thrills my heart. Please know this. Your shepherds are seeking the Lord. We're seeking to stay the course and to fight the good fight. But we can't do that in our own power. There's no way. Second thing you can do is pray for the new shepherds to be raised up. Praying for new shepherds to be raised up. I'm praying for our pastoral intern over Spanish ministry that he's with us for a long, long time here at Grace Bible Church. I'm praying for a pastor over discipleship. I'm praying for a pastor over children's ministry. I'm praying for a pastor over junior high ministry and whatever other shepherds the Lord would see fit to give us because that is a sign of the blessing of God when he gives shepherds. Pray for this. One more thing to pray for. Pray for the men And a few boys among us that are currently aiming toward the gospel ministry. There are many of them in our church, which is a blessing. Now, I didn't tell you guys I was going to do this, but I can pick on you just a little bit. If you're one of the men or the young men that is aiming toward the gospel ministry, and I've been meeting with you, would you raise your hand right now? Show me where you are. 
Where, yeah, higher, you guys be brave. You're going to preach the word. There you go. All right, there's more of them. A couple of them are ushers that aren't in here right now. Pray for them. On average, the average pastor will impact statistically somewhere between 1,000 and 100,000 people in his lifetime. What you just saw raised up is phenomenal. So pray for them. I'll tell you what, it is a terrible, terrible thing when a local church doesn't even have one faithful shepherd. And what a drink of cool water it is when the Lord provides shepherds to feed the precious flock of God. Is that not a blessing? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for these listening ears. Thank you for these precious people here who love your word. Thank you for those who are watching online even, Lord. I I'm just so thankful to you for the church of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that Ephesians 4 explains that when Christ ascended into heaven, he gave gifts, and these gifts were gifts of men. I'm thankful to the men who shepherded me. I'm thankful to a young man when I was in college who took me under his wing and taught me the book of Romans. I'm thankful for the the pastors that I have had I'm thankful for men like Tommy Nelson who poured into my life through simply explaining the Bible week after week after week with faithfulness. Lord, Hebrews 13, 7 reminds us to remember those who taught us the word of God. I pray, Lord, for our shepherds here. I pray that they would stay the course, that they would fight the good fight, that they would remain faithful. I pray for the future shepherds among us Lord, those who raise their hands and five or six others who who, uh, are not here at this moment. Lord, I pray that you would bring them through this process of preparation until one day they have a ministry to call their own for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the church. And Lord, we pray that as a church, we would be faithful in the face of a world that is going bananas that we would be faithful in the face of a nation that would rather worship Satan than God and that we would remain faithful as the return of Christ becomes more and more imminent until that final day, Lord, that you bring us all home. And I know this is asking a lot, but maybe Grace Bible Church could be a big part of your work on this earth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.